Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another delicious text message. I'm Nate Langson. And I'm Ian Morris in the middle of a slurp. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, I did allude to the deliciousness just Is a it, moment ago. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, we do love our hot drinks during a podcast, don't we? So We, we do. We are fans of swallowing. Um, and this week we are going to start by swallowing, or rather regurgitating, perhaps it should be said, um, some news from Mobile World Congress. Now, Ian, you were out at MWC I was. Thi- this week. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of things in detail this week. The first we're going to talk about is the LG G5. And then we're going to really touch upon what kind of stole the show to a lot of extents, uh, which is VR, virtual reality. We're going to go, we're going to take a deep dive below the surface of not just the VR that was shown off at the show, but also um, some of the alternative uses for virtual reality from medical applications, crime scene investigations, pornography, pain <laughs> relief, PTSD. I mean, there's a lot we're going to get into uh, in the second half. We've also got some emails. Um, Ian, let's start with this aforementioned LG G5, the G5. Now, you've written in the show notes here, could it be the phone for 2016? Justify yourself, man. Well, it could be because they've decided to go down a new route um, of modularity, which I find quite exciting. Um, the idea here is that you've got the bottom is removable um, and in there is your battery, so you can switch batteries. And there's also the opportunity to add in different modules. So one leaked that's basically a camera grip um has a zoom wheel on it um and that's that's important but we'll come to the cameras later um and uh it has a button specifically for shooting video and a button for taking photos so it's handy it also has an extra battery built in that one so you get a bit more battery life if you're out shooting snaps all day there's also a DAC a, a much better quality DAC that they've has developed digital, digital to analog converter for that's those of you is not au fair with <laughs> audio terminology. That's the thing that turns things from zeros and ones in memory to physical, well, near physical vibrations for your ears. Yes. And um, there's a much better one on offer from uh, with a, thanks to a partnership with Bang & Olufsen. Mm. Um, so, and that's actually interesting as well because um, you can use it with your computer as well. So you can plug it into a laptop. Uh, you could plug it into another phone. doesn't have to be an LG. just needs a USB connector and a device that supports USB audio. So in terms um, of being the phone for 2016, is it just the fact that this is modular and that... No, and that, I, mean, I mean, a lot of it really interests me. Uh, they've gone for a metal body, so that, that puts it in the same league as, um, you, you could argue, in the same league as the iPhone. Uh, of course, there are differences. Um, I think the thing that I've always loved about LG is that they always seem to think a little bit differently than everyone else. So... While you could say that Samsung and Apple, and and we all know that they both take ideas and inspiration from each other, um, I would say that LG obviously does a bit of that as well, but also always advances things with its own ideas. So it did a curved phone, um, and Samsung did as well, but it was never as good. You know, the um, the LG curved phone was always quite a nice handset to use. Um, they had 
This year they had a V10, which had, it wasn't sold in the UK, uh, but it had two front-facing cameras. One was a wide camera and one was a sort of normal selfie camera, which is actually a very clever idea. So, you know, for normal selfie selfies, then you've got the normal camera. And for when you want to get loads of people in, you've got the wide camera. And Mm. they flipped that around on this one. So on the back, it's an 8 megapixel camera, um, which is wide angle. And then there's a normal 16 megapixel camera that, that, that just deals with the normal stuff. And the purpose of that is to sort of give you a, it, it just gives you a lot of options. You can zoom, um, you can use those two cameras at the same time. So you can have the normal camera um, it forms a picture in the middle and then you can have sort of frame it with um, a sort of blurred image of the wide angle camera. Now, you know, none of this is going to change the world, but the idea is that there's flexibility there to sort of do different things and to make just, they're just ideas that other people aren't using. And I kind of, kind of like that and I respect it. Plus the phone seems great. Um, they've dropped the battery capacity slightly, which is a worry. Um, yeah. but not, not by a huge amount, but it's not, 2,800 to... But, from 3,000, yeah. And, mm. you know, it all makes a difference. Um, so uh, that's a slight worry. Uh, but they, well, do, I, so they do claim they've nailed the battery tech. And Android has a lot of features in the latest version that help enormously with battery tech. Yeah, and we saw this with Samsung as well. And one of the two um, S7 models, I think it was the Edge, the, the battery capacity has been lowered ever so slightly. But as you say, there's a lot going on on the inside in terms of software that really determines how long your battery is going to last. But one of the things the G5 has got that that we haven't touched upon is that it has this always on display on the front, which allows you to show information like if you've got a missed call, the time, do you have an email? And those sorts of things take a tiny, tiny little drip of the battery. Well, here's the interesting statistic. Samsung reckons it's uh, always on screen uses about 1% of power per hour. Um, and LG says it's, it's got 0.8%. But crucially, LG um, actually switches off when it's in your pocket. So it uses the light sensor to detect mm. when it's not needed um, and turns itself off. That's such rather clever, isn't it? It is rather clever. Now, I mean, you've made a good case that this is the this is the interesting Android phone to look out for this year. It's not going to be cheap, we don't think. Um, no, we've looked into um, prices and release dates for the UK. It's going to launch probably in April. So, if you've got a contract in the UK expiring around that time, then this is definitely one to to keep in mind that's going to come out and is worth looking at. It's a flagship. So it's going to be, a, you know, at the top end of the the price range, you know, probably up there with the iPhone and the and the S7. Um, and definitely, I agree with you. And it's got, you know, in terms of what LG is trying to do, whether or not it's something that'll last and we'll see again in the next year's phone, you know, that's all to be determined. But there's yeah. a lot of interesting ideas here. Um, I think the critical thing is going to be to, to to put the cameras side by side and see which takes better pictures because Samsung made a made a big play with the S7. Pardon me, that it was going to be. It was going to be photography-led as a device, you know, aside from the yeah. VR 360 thing, its cameras are amazing. So it's going to be one that we're going to have to put side by side, which is very difficult to do in an audio podcast. It is, but I mean, you we could do it outside of the podcast and then report on the results. Yes, and post them on the blog. <laughs> well, we will we will do that. And um, that's the LG G5 in uh, very interesting to get the, the, uh, the hands-on report. Now, 
let's let's stay on MWC. You were out there at the show this year. I didn't yes. go this year for a variety of reasons. Um, but what was what was the sense that you got from the show? Where was the excitement? And and if you can do this by also mentioning VR, that would make it brilliant for the next segment. <laughs> well, the excitement was all around VR, Nate. Ah, good. <laughs> um, and that I mean that is actually legitimately true. I think. Uh, every show has a, a set of technologies, doesn't it, that ultimately end up being the thing that, you know, with, T- with CES, it, it always used to be a TV thing. It would be 3D yeah. or something like that. Um, Mobile Congress is a little bit harder to predict, but of course there are always trends and VR is going to be the big thing this year. The HTC Vive. This is something that I had a text from my brother Andy um, from CNET, who obviously has been on the podcast before. And he sent me a text saying something along the lines of, have you used the HTC Vive yet? It's game-changing, and I don't use that lightly. Yeah, the the Vive is something special. So since he's currently still out at Mobile World Congress, although I think he's currently driving a Tesla around the French town of Carcassonne um, as we speak, um, can you sort of sum up his opinions with your own opinions and yeah. tell us, what, why are people going so nuts for HTC Vive? Well, I didn't really see Andy at the show, to be honest. I saw a load of the other cool CNET people, but Andy was uh, absent. We we hooked up with uh, Luke Westaway and Katie for lunch. It was very pleasant. But anyway, that aside, um, Vive is um, super, really, really super. Um, what makes it interesting as a VR proposition is that it has this um, ability to allow you to move around a room. So you get with it this sensor. Um, which you set up, and it communicates with the headset, so it knows where you are in the room. And Can you describe un- the sensor? Are we talking like it's a, a small cube? Um, now, let, why don't we start with the downsides? Okay, um, the price I think isn't a massive downside. It's too expensive for most people, but that's fine. It's but generation that's just been announced. One. It's seven hundred yeah, quid, just exactly. Um, and, and of course, that's a huge sum of money, and you're going to have to spend at least that again to get a computer capable of really driving VR. In fact, I saw someone say that they reckoned you could get a VR-capable computer for about 600 quid or something, and I'm a bit dubious about that because I think, you know, the graphics card alone to drive a good VR experience is going to be between three and £500. So I, I mm. would say you're going to be looking at something like a, well, ideally a 980 Ti, but who knows? People will be able to get... You'll be able to do things in VR on less powerful systems, but you won't be able to have that high-end AAA, whatever that turns out to be, experience, I suspect. But what makes the Vive different then from the rest of them? Because they all kind of require the same thing. Well, this is it. So, so, yeah, exactly. Um, The Vive comes with everything, which is interesting, because I don't think that's the case with all of them. Um, You need this room tracker, so it's able to see where you are in the room, but you also get hand controllers, uh, which enable you to sort of feel, if you will, in, in quotes, um, the environment you're in. And then, of course, there's the headset. So what HTC and Steam, uh, Valve, sorry, have done is really make a, a product that's ready to go. So you could take it off the shelf, and as long as your computer's powerful enough, you are going to be able to set up and have a pretty amazing VR experience. And this is done with Valve, the yes. the game developer and the maker of Steam, as, yes. a, as, a, as a partnership? This isn't just tacked on bonuses something no, done well, together. that that aspect of it is sort of an unknown quantity at the moment obviously valve wanted vr and i think that it, this is a very this is a very valve led project uh, but valve's actual 
visible involvement in it is yet to be seen, really, because we don't know what they're going to release to support yeah. it. It's all on the software side for Valve. So whatever's coming down the pipeline, yeah, it's going to be, you know, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where just to throw some excitement out there, they'll announce Half-Life 3 in August and it'll be an entirely VR-led experience yes. that you play using the Vive exclusively or something. Although the guy from Valve told me that those games aren't don't actually lend themselves at all well to VR. Now... I think there's probably a debate to be had about that. Um, VR, especially with the Vive, is something where the, I think they sort of want you to be moving around in the environment. So uh, the, what the, de- the demo you get when you go and see it at a trade show, or if, if HTC shows it off, is you walk into a room. The room is just a normal room. There's furniture in it, um, as when I did it at least. Uh, you put the headset on, and then you're encouraged to move around. And what's very clever about Vive is it has a camera built in um so in addition to this room sensor you're able to program into that or it does a lot of this automatically it is able to sense where the room is so it it scans with a, a you know some sort of laser that's invisible a bit, um, a bit, like, a bit like the connect the xbox connect exactly so it, it knows what's in your room and it can see objects and it can see obstructions so um what happens is if you walk towards a wall you get this wonderful sort of grid that appears in your vr um, view to give you an idea that you're coming towards a boundary and that boundary could be a wall or it could be a chair um, but the software is able to show you that and it does that with the built-in camera as well so if you turn it on you're able to see things that are in the room so but it's it's it sounds it's almost impossible to explain how it works in practice but it's very clever it doesn't just show you the camera it shows you a sort of kind of a, a VR representation of what's in the room so when i did the demo there was a chair and he said oh look there's a chair walk over to the chair and sit down and i was like well are you sure am i not just going to end up on my ass how can this be accurate enough to for me to actually do that and sure enough you absolutely can you can walk up to the chair you can sit down and there's no accidents and it's absolutely brilliant it is wow perfectly designed actually it's really very clever um and i think that's for me, that's where Vive has this advantage over pretty much everything else. It's an all-in-one box. It is expensive, but it's also probably the the best all-in-one package. Now, there are some technical things about it that they say make it technically the best as well, but without testing it next to, say, Oculus Rift, that's hard to judge. Yes, I mean, you, you've kind of convinced me because the the tie-up with Steam and Valve is is a big deal because that's kind of what's going to get us the the real software oomph that we need for something like yeah. this. I mean, the price, you know, anything like this, early adopter type stuff, it's always expensive. I mean, £700 is a lot, but, you know, people will spend that on a phone. And yeah. if the software support is there down the line, I don't think it's unrealistic to, to expect people to pay that. And I and I do like the idea that it is a complete package. On um, the downside, of course, and it's only fair because I was going to do this at the beginning. Um, the problems are fairly substantial in some regard. Uh, you, you're always cabled for one thing, so you have no. to have a cable that runs from you to the computer. So that's going to go away in version two, obviously. I would imagine so, but it's extremely difficult to send two 1080p images wirelessly in real time with no latency and that's the issue and that's why it hasn't been done i think technically it's probably possible but in terms of getting it down to no latency that's near impossible for now i'm sure it will happen mm. um 
the obviously the, the, you have to wire in this sensor as well. There, I, th- I don't know if you get one or two sensors in the box. Certainly, you get one. Um, and again, that has to be, it's wireless, I believe, but it has to be powered. So it has to be plugged into mains. So wherever, and you don't, it doesn't have to be particularly high, but it does have to be able to see your room. Um, so that's quite important to remember. So that, that, those are little niggly things. Um, by the time you put the whole thing on, it is quite a cumbersome experience. Like there's quite a lot of stuff that you have to have, but it's brilliant. It's a, You can draw in 3D space and move around your drawing. And because yeah, you've it, got that positional stuff... It works flawlessly. It's superb. And this is something I actually think was developed by Google. It's called yes, it tilt, was. It's called yeah. Tilt Brush. Yes, that's exactly right. And it, it, it's phenomenal. And you can you can draw and then... and I remember Andy texting me about this bit as well. You can draw and then you can sort of let you walk through your drawings. You can yeah. turn around them and see them from behind. Like some sort of ridiculous... Well, not ridiculous. That sounds, um, that sounds negative. Some kind of um, crazy... Um, what am I trying to say here? Like when you get a sparkler on on bonfire night, and you can write your name or or something, and you can take a photo of it. Yeah, it's sort of like you could walk around that in in real time. Wow. Yes, I mean it's and it and and it's re- it's a really nice experience, and of course it's fun, and I think my kids will really love doing it. Um, but also don't forget that that has absolutely got real world practical applications that you can use. You know from drawing a you know a model of something you want to put in your lounge you know or you know fiddling around with a car design or something like that there are really so many applications for it mm-hmm. um and it, you know and we're at the point now where vr's like it's it actually is a thing that could be used for you know and and is and feels immersive it's not it's not so cumbersome now that it's annoying no. Well, this is going to go for pre-order on the 29th of February, which I believe is Monday, which is um, when most people will probably start to hear this podcast. You will for six hundred eighty-nine pounds, you get the, the the wireless controllers, you get the movement sensor for the room, you get the the head-mounted display, and you get the three software titles. Um, and um, one thing that's quite interesting is that um, you can, I believe, receive calls and texts and things through it, so you're not completely separated from the real world, which I think is quite interesting. It can be a bit of a problem with virtual reality, and it's one of the things that when you're doing it, you kind of do feel a bit weird about, and if someone comes in when you're doing it and taps you on the shoulder, you'll get the scarier life, so it it does bear. But again, HTC can solve that particular problem by keeping you, you aware of what's happening around you. I wanted to really take a look at some of the other uses for VR. Now, there was one example I'm going to get to just briefly to begin with, because a lot of our fellow journalists, um, including Sebastian Anthony on Ars Technica um, UK, who tried this. This was pornography. Um, it's a very weird thing to experience at a press conference, I can only imagine. I, in- I think it's, it sounds absolutely horrendous. Yeah, well, Sebastian gave a write-up um, about his experience with VR porn and uh, a company called Naughty America that I think uh, he said in his piece had about thirty VR titles. Um, he, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through a bit of his article here just to read out some uh, just some highlights from what he said. Don't worry, don't you don't need to switch this off if you have particularly young kids. Um, we're not we're not going to be uh, graphic or rude about any of this. Um, so Sebastian writes, you'll be unsurprised to hear VR porn is awesome. It's like porn, but better. Um, he talked about being able to look at his, uh, well, the actor's body from the actor's head. So the actor obviously had a camera strapped to his 
head um, and talks about that things do feel like they, they stick at you and fly at you. Um, he sat there for quite a long time. Um, sometimes he was sort of a passive observer in the scene. Sometimes the actor was quite actively involved and he got a bird's eye view, so to speak, of that. Um, and uh, I'll quote him exactly on here. He says, To be honest, it was a bit weird looking down and see someone else's body, but after a few minutes of watching, I began to feel a sense of agency. I began to feel that, yes, those rippling muscles were mine. I began to feel that it was me being tended to by two other beautiful people. And of course, just as I was starting to get into it, the demo ended, and I found myself back in the real world being grinned at by a couple of guys from Naughty America. Pretty cool, eh? They said. All I can do is nod. Why did the demo have to end so soon? So um, if you do want to read a slightly more descriptive write-up of that experience, um, do go to arstechnica.co.uk and have a look at our, uh, Sebastian's write-up. Uh, it, is, it is an entertaining read. And, you know... Pornography has a history of driving adoption of technologies, you know, most notably in the Betamax versus VHS um, debate back in the uh, late 80s. That was something that, that the porn industry had a hand in. And um, and to a certain extent as well, the Blu-ray and uh, HD DVD battle a little while after that as well. Um, but let's move away from the obviously uh, curious sides of VR. Let's look at another one. So... I found an example of something called the VR Chair Traveller, which is essentially virtual tourism for people who have maybe locked-in syndrome, you know, ALS, motor mm. neuron disease, or limiting conditions. It's uh, an idea of being able to sell these virtual tourism experiences to people who are physically unable to get to any of these environments. And a bit more digging around this found like quite a number of other uh, examples of how virtual reality is being used to help people who have physical either impairments or problems. Um, a real one that, that seems to be around for quite a long time is is for post-traumatic stress syndrome, fear, phobias, and things like that. I found a company called First Hand that has actually been developing software for virtual reality in uh, for education and therapy services and similar tools since 1995, so that's over 20 years. And they've now got, uh, there's now another company that I think is either an offshoot of that original company or founded by the same people called Dreamstream VR. And according to TechCrunch report, I read early versions of the Oculus Rift headsets were used to offer users pain relief. And that, that there are quite a lot of examples to show that um, it's VR is actually a much safer means of relieving people from pain than just pumping them full of drugs um there was another report on the same topic from wired that said howard rose who spent the last 20 years working on these tools he said that um his com his company had developed something called spider world which was an application to treat people with arachnophobia there was another one as well called iraq world and i think a similar one called afghanistan world which sounds maybe quite fun but actually we used to treat soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome when they when they came back from fighting in Iraq and the, the tools were a, a better way of immersing people in in experiences that maybe they'd been in before but needed to be coached or or talked through in order to start dealing with some of these um symptoms that they had um but there was another one that I saw from this this company um, called Snow World, which is a first-person action game designed to help burn victims manage their pain. Um, and this was done in conjunction with the University of Washington. 
And apparently the, some of the researchers working on this have been using the game to help distract patients from their pain for years now. And, um, and they've started doing a lot more with this technology as part of this deep stream uh, VR uh, startup based out of San Francisco. Um, so it, it's, really, it's really interesting how these tools, because they're so immersive, can A, stimulate people's responses based on experiences they've had in the past that may have been extremely traumatic, but allow them to be so immer- feel like they're so immersed in it that they can actually be treated for it in real time, which I, I think... It's just, you know, it's just absolutely fascinating. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I absolutely would. I think it's, I think it's really good, and I think it's amazing just how much of an impact something like that can have. But I suppose it makes perfect sense if you think about it. Um, you know, that the probably one of the worst things about having any illness that maybe restricts where you can go is the fact that you feel like you're missing out on stuff. And if you can experience that through VR, then you no longer feel like you're missing out, do you? So it makes sense. And um, the idea of using it for pain relief is spectacular. I mean, I love the fact that they've put so much research into it already. It's obviously, VR is obviously going to come from all angles this year, I, I suspect. It's uh, going to be used quite extensively. Well, there's a, there's another one that I found extremely interesting here. I mean, the, the, I read a few different... Um, I read about a number of companies that have been working on things with phobias. Um, there were some to do with agoraphobia or, or people who are afraid of heights or, you know, that, that, that needed to overcome those fears because their job, ironically, um, meant that they had to work at heights or, or what have you. Um, but, um, but there were a number that, that seemed to stand out for fear of flying, which is something that a lot of people have to do and a lot of people are very scared about, um, about doing. And... There's a, a an interesting patent that I found filed a couple of year ago, years ago from the company Airbus, which is obviously one of the biggest airline manufacturers in the world, that has patented a system that shows passengers wearing virtual reality headsets in flight as a way of removing them from the feeling that they were in a flight situation. So, you know, effectively something along the lines of their flight flying on the back of an eagle through a desert instead of flying in a giant compressed tube over the Atlantic. I mean, is that something that you would ever consider using, Ian? Um, well, I mean, I'm not afraid of heights particularly or or anything that I'd want to have treated like that. Well, this um, is specifically flying. Yeah. You know, this I is mean, the idea yeah, of being in a situation where you're, you're physically terrified and, and yeah. these experiences are so immersive that they can remove you, at least in some part, from being... Well, that's, I mean, and of course, that's that is that is probably one of the only way, one of the only accepted ways of curing phobias is to have exposure in varying amounts, and then as you get used to it, the the phobia sort of goes goes away slightly. Um, the the only thing I really wouldn't want to be exposed to is a is a spider, and I can see that being used in VR as well to do the same thing. But yeah, um, well, that's what that's what the um what did I say it was called the spider. Spider yeah. World um, that was yeah. done, Howard Rose over, for um, I mean, first hand. Yeah, and that was that was developed specifically for treating arachnophobia. I mean, and- my arachnophobia is not particularly crippling. I I can get rid of any spider in the house. It's just that I wouldn't want to encounter some of the spiders that exist in some of the parts of the world. I'm looking at you, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the comments I read from one of the researchers actually during this is that, you know, they've been researching this stuff for, for years, decades, in fact, in the case of some. But the problem is, is that because the equipment's been so expensive and so difficult to acquire for such a long period of time, that it's only ever been used to treat really extreme acute cases of either phobias or PTSD for 
you know, people coming back from horrific scenes in, in war. And so there's a degree of excitement that because the technology is being made so much more affordable, that actually this is something that doctors will be able to get their hands on and explore for much, I don't want to say less severe because, you know, uh, anxiety well, yeah, or fear exactly. or anything is, is very severe to anybody, but it's something that could say, well, we can now develop things that are going to be much more widely accepted in doctor surgeries or in hospitals without having to justify spending huge amounts of money to treat only the most severe of cases, which I thought was, you know, just a fantastically exciting way. You know, so many people suffer, you know, even from anxiety disorders. This is the kind of thing that could really help. You can, um, apparently, VR cuddling of children is uh, helping people with depression. You know, it's uh, yeah. there's, there's so much obviously already happening in terms of what this technology might offer in the future that I'm, I mean, I was, I was excited about it from an entertainment point of view. When you start putting science into it, it becomes even more exciting. Like I, I was really chuffed to be able to basically stand on the surface of Mars and have a look <laughs> around um, because I'm never going to get to have that experience in my actual life. So well, you say that, you say that, you never know, but I do, but I know what you mean. But you I know, know what that, you mean. For, for people who, you know, love a bit of science and especially love space, it is, it is the opportunity to really explore things. There is a fantastic VR solar system tour that I play all the time when I, when I borrow a Gear VR from Samsung. It's, uh, it's just superb. Um, hmm. Titans of Space, I think it's called. Um, and it's just fantastic. So good, you know, just one of those experiences that, um, you know, actually feels like you're experiencing something game changing. Well, on the topic of space still, did you know, because I, I didn't know this before doing this research either, that NASA used VR in a room to help astronauts train for correcting a mission in 1993 aboard wow. the Hubble Space Telescope. That's insane. NASA's been using VR for about two decades um, on a range of projects, basically enabling astronauts to get used to making fixes for things where they're having to rely on talking to other colleagues who may have a slightly different perception of what is up or down. Um, and one of the first ones that, that seems to have been documented, and this was in a, a great article on Tech Republic, which I strongly recommend anybody uh, who's interested in this go and read. It was written by Aaron Carson, um, techrepublic.com. And the, um, the, one of the examples that was in this piece was that um, when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched in 1990, it actually had an error on the, on the mirror inside it, and they had to go up and fix it and, and fix this mirror in order to correct the issue. And um, part of the training for this mission was done using virtual reality, which I thought was uh, amazing. I mean, it makes sense in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Because you, what, what, what you need to do with any, any mission in space or any, anything like that is it's about precision, isn't it? And, it? and the only way you can get to precision is by rehearsing over and over again and just making sure that you understand the sequence of things that you have to do to make yeah. something work. And, you know, you're talking about a mission there that if it had failed, that would have rendered, a, a, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment completely useless. So... You know, that makes sense. And I think we're going to see a lot of stuff like that. You know, uh, surgeons are going to be using VR to practice operations. And they'll well, be they able to they do already that. are. Yeah. I they mean, already it, are. And, but it will get it will get cheaper and it will it, it will almost certainly have a huge impact on death rates and mean that people will, you know, have a have much greater chance of surviving operations. Be Definitely. Brilliant. Definitely. Well, I mean, just a couple of others that I found interesting. We, you know, we've talked about this for quite a while, but I found some great examples of how it was being used to train sports players. Um, there's a company called Stry VR, S-T-R-I-V-R, 
which is a technology company that had worked with a U.S. sports team to help people to help the 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 players learn how to um, well basically make snap decisions. I think, for want of a better term, mm. there's an example in this article I found. Um, Stanford quarterback. I have no idea what a quarterback does, but I assume that's quite an important role. <laughs> Stand at the back, somewhere in the last, I don't know, quarter or something. But no, oh, okay. I have no idea, mate. No idea. Well, I assume it's something to do with passing because a quote from this article said that um, after using the VR headset before games, he was completing 10% more passes and the team boosted its average game score from 24 to 38. Wow. And so, you know, this 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 particular I mean... <laughs> quarterback who was in- interviewed said that the, the VR practice was invaluable. Which I can I tell amazing. you that 38 is more than 24. It so, is. So, I mean, that's got to be good, right? I assume. I assume so. I, I hope yeah. no one in the US listens to this, because I, I mean, I don't know much about football, but I really don't know anything about American football. No, Ian and I are not exactly very well versed in the in the sports world, and I'm sure we'll have a number of listeners uh, write in to tell us what quarterbacks do. But don't worry. In fact, don't bother because yeah, because I could Google it if I cared. <laughs> I'll yeah. be honest. But it's great. I mean, this is this is just one example. This this is happening all over the world, and I yeah, think you know and, and, anything that can increase uh, sports players abilities like that you know is obviously in the world of sport incredibly important. I it's think that's been great. quite well known for a long time, hasn't it? That you can. You can rehearse things. So if you want to do if you want to do something well, a physical activity, you can play through it in your mind, and that helps. Apparently, it's a lot almost like practicing it for real. Well, so Bloomberg, you know, Bloomberg did this actually. They, really? they, yeah, we had um, a VR system for helping people prepare for talks. Interesting. So, no, the, you, so you, to get rid of the sort of the stage fright aspect of it and things like yeah. that. Yeah, you would, you would be able to see. Idea. You would see, you could see. Uh, you could put on the headset and you could see the room um, that you're going to be speaking in, like literally the room at, at mm. the Bloomberg office, and you could put on the VR, give your talk with a virtual audience, and to try and sort of get used to giving the talks. And it would, it would. I think I can't remember because I remember, I didn't see any of this firsthand, but I think it would let you know, like via an app, if you were pausing a lot or saying ah, um or very you know, clever. Uh, it, all they need now is to tie that into some AI that understands humor and things like that, and can li- listen to what you're actually saying and then give you a report at the end. You know, that was funny. Um, I, we predict that people would be 75% engaged in what you were saying, and that would be amazing. Well, hopefully they don't apply that to podcasting because we have a fantastic audience that is very <laughs> able to tell us whether or not we've done a good job. Um, there were some other sto- topics I could get into here, but we've gone on for such a long time. And to be honest, a lot of these have such large medical uh, applications they do have medical applications but the you know there are lots of benefits to this but vr has been used to help rehabilitate stroke patients uh, children with very severe cases of autism um there are a lot of these and obviously fear of flying is one the the stuff about motor neuron disease we mentioned earlier you know i don't want to v- sort of validate and qualify how good or successful these are but these are all things that exist and i encourage anyone who's listening if you've either had experiences of these or know about them or just, you know, want to go out and do a lot more research about it, you know, we'd love to hear about um, sort of how good these are and how effective they are. But either way, there's because of the the, the sheer number of the de- devices coming on sale now, the price of these things is coming down so much that hopefully we're going to just get more research taking place to make any of these remedies using VR better, more widely available and ultimately more successful at, at healing patients and um, and entertaining us, or arousing us in the case of 
Sebastian's <laughs> porn story. Um, but let us know any of your thoughts or if we've missed out any that you think uh, would be interesting. We, we're always happy to re-explore this topic because it's fascinating. Uh, podcast at natelangson.com. Okay, it's time to talk about email. Specifically, we're going to talk about not the protocol, emails. presumably. No, not the email protocol, Ian, <laughs> the antiquated uh, protocol. No, we are going to talk specifically about two emails. The first one has come in from Rob. Rob says, hi, Nate slash Ian. A couple of points in relation to the conversation about three ad blocking this week. First off, Ian's assertion that advertising isn't really that bad and doesn't have much of an impact on bandwidth. It reminded me of this article, and he sent us a link to an article about um, the, the webpage The Verge. Um, he says, this guy does a test on the blog of content being served up from The Verge. The main page came in at 12 megabytes. 7 megabytes of that was JavaScript. 1.3 meg is CSS. 1 megabyte is images. 700k is HTML. And I should interject there that 7 meg of JavaScript does seem like, you know, that's ads and things because a megabyte of images does not seem very much. Um, in this example, Rob continues, there's an awful lot of crap on the site. Ian's statement that ad delivery networks do need looking at, but it's not that bad. I think that's a long way from reality. Secondly, Rob continues, in reference to the part of the conversation about how everything is currently ad-sponsored and consumers need to realize this and stop getting stuff free by blocking ads. I work for a technology company. Most for most of its existence, we've sold servers to customers to install in their data centers. But now Amazon has come along with its cloud services and customers have found a different way of getting what they want. We have had to adapt and change our products with varying success. The correlation I'm trying to make here is that for a long time we ignored this new cloud thing because it didn't fit our products, Rob says. We were no longer making what our customers wanted and they found different ways to consume and pay for technology. I think something similar is happening to the web. For a long time, advertising, advertised-supported content has been a good way of delivering content to readers. However, the balance between content and advertising, and the intrusive nature of the advertising, is disenfranchising users. I would draw a distinction between readers not wanting to pay for content and getting it for free, and readers wanting to dodge intrusive advertising. Maybe something like Google Contributor might be the answer. Maybe not that specific product, but that kind of idea. That, um, Rob was suggesting, is something where Google allows you to sort of make these tiny little micropayments on, on websites that support it, and the ads disappear. It's actually not available in the UK yet, unfortunately, but I did have a look to see that. You can go to google.com slash contributor to uh, look into the details, because I hadn't really heard much about this. Uh, finally, Rob uh, concludes, I honestly don't think readers want stuff for free, and I think they are prepared to be shown adverts or to pay for content directly. But the current situation with awful intrusive advertising isn't a viable position going forward. That's a great email, Rob. Really enjoyed that, and I think some really salient points there. Um, but, you know, all comp I think that the, the nub of this is companies have to adapt, and if you know, if you don't adapt and change based on what customers want, then you're going to get shot in the foot, and th that's kind of what I, we're I, seeing I, a I bit. I think that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think everyone who works in our industry understands that you know, it's not advertising is not going to last forever, and, and or is it won't be able to support every site out there. Um, mm. Page weight's a huge issue. It was a huge issue when I used to work at the BBC years ago, developing stuff, and um, used to get a proper telling off if you weren't underweight for pages, um, but. 
there's a lot going on like that. Why is that JavaScript on the verge taking up seven megs? That's well, ridiculous. Ja- JavaScript could it, it could be anything. I mean, seven megabytes of JavaScript. It's, it's a lot of. I mean, I'm, I know CSS can take up a lot because obviously it ha- it may be take you know switching in and out images and stuff like that. And so it, it's hard to judge, isn't it? Really, because it it could be containing any manner of things. But one um, twelve megabyte page is, is is a hell of a lot. It and- is a, it is a lot, and I've got I've railed against this because you know you see people people these days just don't get it they're using animated gifs uh, animated gifs are literally the most ineffective compression system for moving yes. images you could ever imagine the uh, thing was developed like 30 years ago it it's is i mean there it's crap yeah there there are a sequence of, of of actually quite high res badly compressed bitmap <laughs> you know, images but, but almost high res, high res in a completely useless way not in a really good way there's and several megabytes some... each several megabytes per yeah. gif let's and not I forget that to buzzfeed and did a thing and it blew my mind i mean sometimes they're okay but sometimes you get these pages and and, and people don't realize that and they don't want to realize that like people don't want to think about how much data they're downloading no but and there's a lot that, that can be done on the server side for that without blocking ads i mean this is the kind of thing that opera did very well in fact opera's just been bought by a chinese company and opera mini was one of the forerunners to modern mobile like modern mobile browsing back at sort of it seemed to be at its heyday around the N95, the Nokia N95 era, because it would it would compress stuff at the server side before sending it to you and dramatically reduce the length of time it took to download web pages because it was compressing it before the mobile network got it. We don't we haven't need to needed to use that because 3G and 4G has increased so much, but that's now what we're seeing um, be exploited to a certain extent by ad networks because they don't have they're not thinking that much about the efficiency of their ads. They're just thinking about getting the ads out to people we could go down a rabbit hole and talk about this um so that thank was a you. good email that was, it was a really great good email. rob thank you ever so much well ian that's going to wrap it up for this week i believe um thank you for jaunting out to barcelona oh no um, worries it was my pleasure i assume you've got some write-ups on forbes for I people i do i do and um and there will be more as well i, d- I had um i had an, an, some very interesting chats about 5g so we should ah. talk about that one week because um 5g won't be around for a few years but when it arrives it will it will uh, be revolutionary i think yeah well this mobile world congress was the first year i saw the term 4.5g banded about yes um and uh, i have thoughts on that too well maybe Qualcomm's that's only... got some wicked tech actually that's gonna it's gonna make a huge difference to and we'll we'll theoretically have some gigabit speeds um quite soon well that's in theory a... That's a tease for everybody. We'll double the bit rate of the podcast. <laughs> yes. We'll go all the way to 256 kilobits per second. Amazing. No, we'll, co- we'll come back to that. Um, thank you to everyone who's been leaving reviews on the iTunes stores around the world. I mean, we're well over 120, I think now, five-star reviews just on the UK store alone. Please keep them coming. Cannot tell you how, how much that benefits us. So if you listen to the show, if you enjoy it, if you think somebody else might like it, tell a friend, tell a colleague, help them install a podcast app and uh, and, and and get them subscribed to text message. And no of course, need for our... an ad blocker on this show. Hey, Nate. Well, I don't need any ad blockers when there's no ads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was my point. Oh, I see. Sorry. Yes, but leave those <laughs> reviews. And, uh, and we'll see you guys in another week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.